You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Some people focus on selling skills, like reaching decision makers or internet marketing. Others focus on work processes, measuring data, and systems thinking. In this podcast, we discuss how these can be brought together to motivate people and create wealth for everyone. I'm Michael Webb, and today I'm excited for you to meet my guest, Joseph Harris. Joseph is the author of State of Readiness, Operational Excellence as a Precursor to Becoming a High-Performance Organization. Joseph, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today because there's so much potential for sales and marketing organizations to benefit from operational excellence, but it's often misunderstood by them. Uh, and so I just think this is going to be fascinating. Before we get started, could you tell us where you came from and what you've done in your career that's earned your reputation in this arena? I suspect that not many people in my audience know about your work. Well, I was uh, born and raised in upstate New York, a town called uh, Endicott, whose claim to fame uh, was being the birthplace of IBM. Uh, IBM had since, uh, at one time, the, the area, you know, employed like 20 or 25,000 people, uh, in IBM, but IBM has, has, uh, since shrunk, um, considerably from, from that large footprint. Uh, but my father was an IBMer, you know, through and through, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, from where I hail. Okay. And so, what is it that has earned your reputation in operational excellence? Well, um, I started my, uh, my consulting company, Zonatech, in 1985. Uh, so running a consulting firm now for 30 plus years, it makes me uniquely unemployable. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, just, uh, you know, it's, uh, it would, it would be very difficult for me to work for somebody. I guess I could do it because I, you know, we work for clients after all, right? You know, people mm-hmm. hire us, we work for them, but, you know, um, I would definitely have to be a C-suite kind of, a kind of guy. Um, but I, I, I started in uh, 1985 and I've always, uh, had a, an emphasis or an orientation of trying to get companies to, be more productive, more efficient, more effective in the endeavors uh, and their goings on. Uh, and I started off in the IT uh, uh, industry, uh, you know, engineering PC networks when P- PCs were just you know first coming out, uh, and then into ERP systems, um, and that took me through and the company through the early 2000s. But along about the early 2000s, I became disenchanted with technology and I'm still disenchanted uh, with technology to this day. And when I say disenchanted, what I mean by that is that I saw these very, very bright people, you know, leaders of, of, of companies, business units, and I call them 50 pound brains. If you think about, you know, like uh, the, the original <laughs> Star Trek uh, pilot, you know, with the big, uh, big brained individuals, you know, that, that's the kind of brains these people have. And they're in front of their screens. You know, 50% of the time, they're feeding the beast, this information systems beast. And what frustrated me was I didn't know if the technology was servicing the people or if the people were servicing the technology. Right. And what I really felt was that the people were servicing the technology more. They were feeding it more than they were getting, uh, especially the very, very, uh, um, you know, the leaders of the businesses. So, um 
I, I didn't like what I was doing anymore. I had to reinvent the company. Um, and, uh, that took a, took about a five year dream walk, if you will, from, from the moment I said, I have to reinvent my own company to, uh, it being reinvented. And, um, I said, okay, what do I, what do I like to do? I like to make companies work better. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to emphasize the people over the technology. And so I really started looking at how do the people interact uh, with the work and how does the work interact with the people, process flow. Um, and, and I uh, had a reorientation towards industrial engineering and lean and Six Sigma. Um, so it's, you know, all around the you know, 2005, 2008 timeframe. Um, but even then, I saw that people were fixated on the tools. You know, it wasn't about, um, you know, just process improvement. It was about people uh, arguing whether or not Lean was better than Six Sigma or now we've got Agile. And they were so fixated on the words and, uh, and the tool sets. It was almost as if they were manifesting um, this information technology into processes and procedures and tool sets. And, um, and I said, there's got to be a better way. So is that what I, led uh, to the Operational Excellence Society, which you founded? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly um, how it, uh, it, mind you, it was much, uh, it was a more of a Forrest Gump moment than anything else. It was more lucky than smart. This was not a design play. I was at a uh, Institute of Industrial Engineers conference, um, maybe 2006 or something like that. And there was a discussion about operational excellence. And some of the discussion was kind of interesting because it was like, you know, beyond Lean and Six Sigma. But most people wanted to just rebrand Lean and Six Sigma as operational excellence. And I was like, no, there's got to be more. Um, So I got back uh, and I uh, started, I was like, you know, user number 10 on LinkedIn. I mean, I've been a LinkedIn user forever. Um, And they had a thing called Groups. So I just decided to grab operational excellence as the group. Again, this is like, you know, no, no real design because I wanted to try to figure out what it was to other people and people would join and I would approve. And, and, you know, eventually you got up to like 10,000 people. And what I discovered is that, um, the challenges companies and individuals face are the same around the world, but how they approach those problems it's very different. It's very local. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, a South African being, you know, in South Africa, um, when something needs updating, something needs repairing, or they, their uh, their immediate uh, go-to solution is duct tape and WD-40. Because they know it's going to take them forever to get the part, and it's going to, you know, it's going to cost money they don't have, and, you know, they need they need it running now. A German, on the other hand, will come up with the perfect solution that archaeologists will find generations from now, and it'll still be working. Yes. Because they have the resources. And Americans are a bit impetuous. You know, we don't think things all the way through. But, you know, these are the way we were brought up, you know. And and when we're looking at a problem, we want to solve it based on how we're brought up. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so is your yeah. approach to operational excellence then uh, like uh, cultural or especially sensitive to these different backgrounds of people yes. in different parts of the world? 
Yeah, it, it really is because um, people um, uh, want to hold on to their beliefs, you know, on to their faith, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's very very difficult to get somebody to abandon one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs. It's virtually impossible. So what you really have to do is you have to uh, uh, couch and coach from within their value system, their, their core beliefs. Um, and you can't expect big muscle movements very quick. I mean, you could expect um, big changes, but it's going to come over time. Mm-hmm. But get back to the operational excellence. I also have a friend that's um, a, a Marine aviator. And of course, they all go by their, their call signs, right? There's boom and there's hatch and there's dirt man and there's vixen and, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and unlike, uh, Top Gun the movie, you don't get to pick your own, uh, call sign. You're usually, um, uh, given it because of something stupid that you did. So anyway, I'm speaking with boom and, um, <laughs> And, 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 um, you know, I'm we're talking about operational excellence and he talks about, um, you know, when a, um, a, a carrier group is made operational, it means that the Navy has designated it suitable, uh, capable to pursue or engage in, in the purpose for which it was intended. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you think about it. Okay. You think about now an aircraft carrier. It's got 5,000 people on there. You know, you got airplanes, you got a bunch of kinetics, uh, mm-hmm. you got a nuclear reactor, you got, you know, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all about systems and they're all about processes. But then, you know, the carrier is not by itself. It's got, you know, other ships tending to it and mm-hmm. supporting. It. So you think about this whole organization now working together as an organization. And now I'm thinking, yeah, now I understand what operational excellence is all about. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, if you have an organization that excels at uh, operating as an organization, um, you're going to have a competitive advantage. Now, this doesn't mean that, that lean and six segment process improvement uh, uh, is passe and doesn't have a place. It's absolutely false thinking um, because you can't have organizational or operational excellence without having systems excellence, without having process excellence. Mm-hmm. You think about processes, uh, a bunch of processes uh, uh, um, formed together, organized together, constitute a system, a series of systems constitute an organization. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's really how I uh, came to uh, consider operational excellence uh, as it is today. But it took, you know, a good five years of research and discovery and, and listening, a lot of listening to a lot of different people. Um, okay. So, so what is it about your conception of operational excellence? Um, aside from the cultural sensitivity um, and, and emphasizing what people already know and, and building on that, what are the components of your approach? What's, what's unique about it? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that, uh, the first thing is that it's uh, it's prescriptive without being finite. What, what I mean by that is that um, <clears throat> business factors uh, are different from business to business, from where they are in the business cycle uh, compared to others. And when you're looking at operational excellence, you can't do it all at once. I mean, you have to figure out you know what's important, what's not important, and start working on what's in, 
the important things. So, for instance, I have a, a client here, uh, and uh, I asked them, what's their vision? You know, what's the company's vision? And they mm -hmm. said that they wanted to be the number one uh, e-commerce fashion uh, provider in all of Europe. I said, super, super. You want to be number one. Number one in what? Right? Is it number one in profitability? Number one in market share? Number one in customer satisfaction? What does number one mean? Now, mm -hmm. the reason this is important is because you have to align your efforts to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I want to be number one in market share, then my efforts and what I do to achieve that might be different than if my, my true north is number one in profitability. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we have to do as an organization, I believe, is understand what operational excellence is, is you know, getting that organization to work better as an organization, but at the same time, understand what the vision is of the company mm -hmm. and to prioritize your efforts in the pursuit of that vision. And the real challenge there is, you know, you've, you've been around the block as have I, we've seen Lean Six Sigma or continuous improvement programs cease being continuous. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's because they're not working on what's important to the company. So you think about the CEO, the CEO in most companies, unless it's a family, smaller family owned enterprise, but most CEOs are appointed by the board, mm -hmm. right? And the board said, you know what, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, I like your vision of our, our company's future. I'm, and I think that not only do I like it, I think that you can deliver it. Right? So when the CEO signs that contract and leaves the boardroom, the clock is ticking. He's right. or she has made that commitment to the board that in three years' time, this company is going to be this. Right. All right. So <clears throat> the prioritization of the efforts are going to be in pursuit of that vision. Right. Now, if you think about, uh, you know, continuous improvement or OPEX people, you know, I've never seen these people leave a company worse off than when they started. I mean, there's always improvement. Mm -hmm. But the CEO doesn't get excited and uh, because they don't see, the CEO doesn't see how these people can help the CEO achieve that vision. Yes, that's a okay. common disconnect and a frustration of Lean and Six Sigma uh, people uh, yeah, around the world. Right, yeah. And I got into a... a Enthusiastic, we'll call it an enthusiastic debate. Now, I think it's a nice euphemism for it. An enthusiastic, <laughs> enthusiastic debate where uh, I was speaking to some, uh, some uh, lean and Toyota uh, people. Um, and, you know, some of these folks really take it as a religion. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a religion. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a methodology. It's a management operating system. Um, it's not a religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, they're telling me uh, and making the statement that, you know, leadership just doesn't understand. Okay. And I turned it right around. And I said, no, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. Leadership knows what they need to accomplish. You have not taken the time to understand what's important. You know, you're fixated, you're fixated on the inputs, not on the outputs. And, and I said to, uh, to them, find out what that three-year plan is uh, in detail. Now, this is the challenge here is because the CEO 
oftentimes, and when I say the CEO, I'm talking about really generally the C-suite, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm just consolidating it down. But the CEO has this vision of the future. And to that CEO, that vision is so crystal clear that it should be obvious to everybody. But it's not. That's a wrong assumption. Mm -hmm. Because the CEO is is thinking in terms of Wall Street, thinking in, in big MBA words. And... They're not thinking uh, and communicating to the rank and file in terms that they could get their heads around. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give this is you're going to appreciate this um, because this has to do with sales. <laughs> when I was younger, I wanted a, a muscle car, an American muscle car. Mm-hmm. You know, 1979, 1980, I wanted an American muscle car. You know, like some, you know, just think about it: big eight-cylinder, gas-guzzling, yep. uh, growling, fast car. And I went to these, uh, you know, auto dealerships, a couple of, you know, used car dealerships. And, uh, you know, because by 79, of course, uh, the oil, you know, the oil embargo had hit. And, you you know, you're not going to get the, the, the muscle cars that, that they made in the 60s well, and the early and, 70s. Yeah. And you're similar age to me. So, I mean, you didn't have exactly yeah. uh, unlimited funds to go find one of these beasts. <laughs> That's right. So, so I go to these used car dealerships and I tell them what I want. I say, I want to fast American muscle car. And there's two, I went to the first two dealerships and the sales rep is talking to me about carburation and compression and torque. And I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I don't understand any of this stuff. And of course I didn't buy the cars from them. And I went to this other uh, dealership and I tell them I want, you know, I want a muscle car. It's just pretty simple stuff. And um, he shows me this, this one. And uh, I said, is it fast? And he looks at me and he says, it's a rocket. <laughs> now, I could get my head around, it's a rocket. Okay? I could visualize it. I understand it. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I bought it. <laughs> right? It's a rocket. Um, the other cars might have been faster. might have been better. Uh, I don't know. Because I didn't understand the language. Right. But I understood a rocket. And so so did you end up, were you happy yeah. with that experience in the end? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it was a Chevelle SS ragtop. It was really, really sweet, sweet ride. Um, <laughs> Good. So, uh, but but the point is, you know, I'm the CEO. I want to be sold. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to um, I want to accomplish my mission, which is to get uh, in this case a muscle car. The Lean Six Sigma guys are talking to me about torque, compression, and carburation. Mm-hmm. Don't care about any of that stuff. I want an American muscle car. The guy that gets the that helps me is the one that gets the deal, gets my support in essence. Okay, I support this person because they're delivering to me what I want in terms that I could understand. Well, they're promising you what you want. Yeah, well, they're promising. I mean, yeah, but you have to have a level of trust, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, know, if you don't have trust, and then you got more fundamental problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, assuming that uh, the trust is established, and the trust in this case was established because it took the thing for a test drive, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And it was behaving the way I, I was hoping it would behave. Uh, and the ragtop was just like, you know, just sweet. But <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make, you know, get, getting to, to uh, more contemporary uh, and operational excellence is that if I have two guys and I'm a CEO of a company and I'm not an OpEx expert, I'm going to want to explain to um, the people that are going to help me achieve my objectives what those objectives are, and I really, really have to be uh, specific. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and crystal clear, very, very clear. Um, in order for them to be able to configure um, uh, a program that's going to help me out. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the funny thing is, is that the CI pro, uh, continuous improvement or, or OpEx people are going to use the same tools and techniques they would otherwise. Okay. Except that they're working, uh, their prioritization methods are different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not like they're abandoning, you know, their tools and techniques uh, for what the CEO wants. They're applying those tools and techniques, prioritizing to achieve what the, the CEO needs to achieve. So you're saying that they need to do a better job of showing the CEO how they can help them to achieve the objectives they've set for the organization. Yeah. In this, in this case, it's a two-way street. The, the CEO has got to be really crystal clear and very, very simple, simple terms explaining what that vision is so people can help them or her. Uh, and then, of course, the CI people or OpEx people have to listen. And uh, it's, it's up to them to understand the CEO, not the CEO to understand them. You know, the CEO is never going to, you know, be on the, on the shop floor with a stopwatch, you know, evaluating tack time. I mean, right. that's not what the person does. Um, he's got to be able to trust that those people are proficient at their job um, to deliver the outcomes that, that are desired. Right. So um, let me ask you a question. Um, yeah. No doubt you followed the progress of one of the companies that was vaunted as the operational excellence paradigm, General Electric. Yeah. And after Jack Welch left, uh, who was quite a command and control kind of a fellow, uh, and Jeff Imelt took over. Uh, it's been, you know, like a meteor falling to the ground in the last 15 years or 18 years, I guess. Um, and he was real clear about what his objectives were, and he was pretty good at communicating them to the rest of the organization. Uh, didn't work out so well, even though they had operational excellence DNA in their blood. Well, they didn't really have operational excellence. He was a big, uh, Jack Welch was a big fan of, uh, of Six Sigma. In fact, mm-hmm. he had Dr. Harry, uh, yeah. Michael, uh, yeah. doing the, the training there. Um, and smart bunch of folks, uh, where GE had a strategic blunder. And this, is, of course, my opinion is that, you know, GE was known for making apparatus, right? You know, like mm-hmm. jet engines and turbines and power plants. And then they got too deep into finance. Okay, and they left left industry uh, for finance. Now, the unfortunate thing about finance is sometimes you don't know you made a mistake for years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for instance, one of the things that is recently haunting them is way back when uh, they started GE started selling these uh, long term care health insurance programs plans mm-hmm. insurance. Okay, and what they didn't expect is that people were going to live so darn long, and the actuaries were wrong. But of course, you know, they're selling plans 20 years ago that are just now being paid out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was, you know, if, if you make a, a defective turbine, you're going to find out pretty quick and you can measure that. So, you know, I think, you know, Jack Welch, uh, you know, there's, there's two things. Is, does GE still 
do things with, with you know, if they're ma manufacturing product, do they excel at manufacturing product? Okay. And, you know, we haven't heard about major recalls of GE anything, right? We, we've heard about financial woes. And, um, and so I, I don't know necessarily that I would say that, um, you know, Jack Welch and that, that culture of continuous improvement or Six Sigma resulted in uh, the challenges they face today. I think it was getting too deep, too long into non-core um, offerings. So, so you're, you're thinking that uh, it had nothing to do with operational excellence? No, I, I don't think their current situation had to do with operational excellence. I think that it had to do with getting into uh, fields of business that they had no business being in. Yeah, I think I might differ with you there. Um, yeah. And the reason is that one of the things, at least in the really lengthy Wall Street Journal article that came out a month or so ago, um, um, there was a lot of um, telling people what they want to hear instead of telling people the truth going on up and down the ranks of management in GE. And that is a violation of the integrity required, of the data and evidence and the rational connections required. And in my mind, that's one of the key things that operational excellence brings to the company. But only it can only do it if senior management is willing to listen and pay attention and understand the difference between data and evidence and telling the market what they want to hear. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that at all. I don't know how much of that had an impact um, on their you know, current situation. Like I said, when, I come, when it comes back down to building product, um, you don't hear about GE making poor products. Mm -hmm. You don't. No. So. So, so let me ask you this question. One... One of the things, and you mentioned it earlier, is about, about operational excellence and continuous improvement. That's a challenge is in sustaining the gains, sustaining right. uh, improvement over time. Why do you think companies have such difficulty with that? Well, a lot of times it's because they, they're going into the unknown. You know, so they don't uh, take the time up front to you know, decide or, uh, or determine what success looks like. You know, you know, if, if I'm a, uh, creating an OpEx program or a CI program, how do I know I'm successful? You know, and um, uh, not too many organizations uh, take that time up front to to architect their program. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, a fatal error in, mm. in almost every case, um, because then uh, the organization or the uh, um, the program is constructed around inputs, what I call inputs, you know, numbers uh, of projects, um, you know, numbers of black belts created or green belts created, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not focused on the outputs. You know, what is it generating? Um, you know, I was uh, working in a, a Gulf state, um, one of the Gulf states, uh, one of their uh, national oil and gas companies there. And their director of OPEX had made mention to me that he had created uh, or had certain Certified 60 black belts, and they hadn't completed a project. Now, how can you be a black belt without completing a project? Putting that aside for a second, um, how can you have 60 people and none of them had a had a project to work on? So, to me, that is the same as building inventory. Right. I would and, agree with that. You know, you know, you don't. You want to create a pull in your organization for the solution, 
uh, and the resources to fulfill that, uh, realize that solution. Okay. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I think that that is a, a challenge that most companies have. They, they focus on the inputs, not on the outputs. So aside from the operational excellence department, um, all these different functions in a business, have you seen that some of them uh, have more difficulty adopting or applying uh, the principles and creating successes and improvements? Some departments have more difficulty than others? Uh, yeah, a lot of that has to, you know, come down to, uh, you know, capacity and capability. I mean, keep, if you go to any business, if you go to anybody within any business and you ask them to give you a suggestion for one, um, problem that they would like to have fixed, guarantee you every one of those employees can come up with one problem. So problem recognition, and I, I, I hate using the word problem because it's so pessimistic. Opportunity or challenge recognition mm-hmm. is not an issue. Okay. They, you know, they'll give you challenges, you know, all day to Sunday. Um, the challenge is what to do about it. Okay. Some of them don't have the, the problem solving skills necessary to, to, you know, realize these opportunities. And, um, I believe that those skills should be taught at the local level. That being said, not everybody is going to be able to be the, the problem solver. Uh, you know, they just don't have the aptitude or the, you know, people are different. Uh, you know, there's a reason mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I love to play golf. I suck. Okay. And there's no amount of, of practice that's ever going to make me good enough to be on the PGA tour, which is why you don't see me on the PGA tour. Um, so, you know, even though I have an appreciation for something, if I don't have the aptitude or the ability to have that skill set, then I have to rely on others. Okay. So when, you know, I think it's, it's, um, a mistake for an organization to say, I'm going to make everybody a yellow belt or a green belt or whatever it is in my organization. That's just not how it works. You have to have people that will uh, illuminate opportunities for improvement and then other local resources that are going to realize those opportunities for improvement, um, you know, as a, as, as a team. Um, and those people uh, will learn uh, problem solving skills to the, to the level of their ability. Hmm. And, uh, you know, okay. I, I think it's a mistake to try to say everybody's got to be this. Okay. So let's turn to the sales and marketing department. Do you, what, do you think it has any unique challenges or is it just similar to uh, other departments? It's, you know, if, if, you, if you get above it, it's similar. Okay. Um, but the funny thing about sales and marketing, it's, you know, it's less exact than uh production you know there's there's people involved and people have a funny way of being different um and so what might work um with one person is not going to work with another person i don't know if you ever heard of the uh, peter principle i'm sure you Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. um you know and the example that i i enjoy the most because i could relate to it is that you have this rock star salesperson and you know you're going to promote that person to be the manager of sales and maybe that magic salesman dust will sprinkle on all the other salespeople and they'll all become rock star salespeople. Now, the rock star salesperson is a great rock star salesperson, but he's a terrible manager. 
because it's two different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is that rockstar sales rep leaves or is forced out. Mm -hmm. uh, where had they just been allowed to leverage their strengths and augment their weaknesses, um, everybody would have been better off. So in sales, I, I, I think that it's a mistake to try to be as exact um, as uh, you are in production. I mean, you know, you're never going to get to six sigma. I mean, three defects, you know, per million, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. uh, you're never going to get to that because uh, it's being inexact. The same would be of, of healthcare. You tell a um, a doctor that uh, an appendectomy is going to take exactly you know sixteen and a half minutes to perform um, because that's the tack time, and they're going to say, well, what about this, 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 and this? I mean, you know, once you start cutting, um, you know, the outcome is is going to be is going to vary. Uh, and the same I think with uh, sales and marketing uh, is that uh, you have to look at um, you know the salesperson. And what their strengths are, uh, what works for that person uh, in their pitch and approach, and what doesn't. Um, I, you know, I'm working with a client right now that's going through something very similar. They're going through a, and you might be able to relate to this. They're going through a, uh, what we'll call an S curve, a business S curve, where they were a small company and they're quickly becoming a big company. And when you're a small company, people wear a lot of hats. Right. And what's happened is, and it's a technology company. So, you know, they have a sales group that, you know, has, you know, six or eight people in it. And, um, uh, and people will do the demos and fulfill the uh, literature requirements and maintain the CRM system and et cetera. But they have not, um, gravitated to best purposes yet. You know, they have a couple of people that are really great at, you know, technical pre-sales and they have other people that are great at, at, uh, you know, establishing trust and relationships, but everybody's all mixed up and it's a bit of chaos. And in order to grow, um, they don't want, you know, it, it's foolish to try to grow your sales team in a linear fashion as your revenue grows. You know what I mean? You want, you'd like to be able to have, you know, more sales per sales rep. Right. Uh, over time than, than not. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, um, an organizational challenge that they have to face and, and resolve. Well, uh, in, in addition, I mean, customers are actively avoiding B2B salespeople, right? They're looking on the internet for information and they're, they're, they're challenging what value does the salesperson add? Right. So yeah. a lot of companies have to kind of step back and rethink how they go to market. Um, not, I mean, including channels, but, but more of what are, what's the stages that a, a customer goes through from the time they never heard of you before to the time that they're spending time and money with you. Those stages are fairly predictable. And what are we doing to help the customer better than our competitors at each of those stages? And the salespeople only play one role in that, right? They do the stuff that can't be automated, but there's lots of other places that the customer wants to find information. There's lots of things the customer is trying to do that a marketing tactic or a website or a conference paper or a self-assessment 
It's not necessarily a sales tactic for everything. And I think one of the traps yeah. that B2B companies fall into is they think that the sales department, I mean, sales is about what salespeople do, and they don't have a model to think about it in a systemic value stream kind of a way. Would you yeah, agree with that? Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And and as you point out, what is the value of a salesperson, especially in a B2B environment? Um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, a lot of times it's going to be depending on who that salesperson is talking to. If you are talking to the CEO like or a CEO type like I am, mm-hmm. you want to buy the rocket. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You don't want all the detail. You know, I got, I got a pain point. You know, you say you can fix it. Do I believe you? If that, if that's true and, and I think it's a, a you know, a reasonable uh, price for what I'm expecting, then I'm just going to, you know, uh, hire you and I'm on to the next thing because I got to make 10 other decisions just like that today. Um, and that's one lesson I have to make. Uh, you get down to, uh, you know, deeper in the org chart and those people want more detail. Right. I mean, cause you know, they're going to be, they're going to be using it. You know, the CEO makes a decision. They think it's done. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm, I'm going to buy an ERP system. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen five of them. Uh, I'm going to hire this one. Good. I've signed the contract, given them a check. I, I'm thinking that that's done. Now that's just the end of the beginning, right? I mean, you know, now it's got to be implemented and whatnot. But for the, you know, for the CEO, that is a very, very high level decision that's being made. And in their mind, it's done. Now oh. the people down below are knowing that that's going to be a lot more work. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so uh, that's just one more question and we're, we're kind of running out of time, but we'll yeah. have to do this again because it's kind of fun. And it, I find it fascinating to uh, see your perspectives on this and, and uh, there's just such a rich topic. So this, here's a question. What do most CEOs, what would benefit them to, if they understood about operational excellence. I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of CEOs who have some misperceptions about what it is. What do they really need to know about it? What they need to know about it is that if it's properly le- leveraged, property, you know, properly uh, configured and designed, and archi- I use the, word, the term architected, if it's properly architected, an OPEX or CI program will help that CEO realize their vision sooner. And my personal belief is that time is the enemy of the 21st century company. And the company that can see further beyond the horizon, recognize opportunities and threats sooner, devise and deploy decisive responses faster, is going to have the competitive advantage. So if if I were to say anything to, to coach an OPEX or CI program to be more successful, it would be Make sure that whatever it is that you're doing is going to shorten the delivery time to the commitments the CEO made to the board and to its shareholders. Okay. So then I got to ask one more. What does okay. operational excellence offer to sales and marketing? Um, well, I mean, you know, if we think about time being the enemy, I think that you might even agree with this, that based on your experience, is that oftentimes we don't win projects because we're the best. Because, you know, we're, we're you know, selling some oftentimes intangible stuff. I mean, you know, I'm a consultant, right? You can't, you know, I, I was able to take that Chevelle SS around the block for a test drive. You can't really take me around the block for, for a test drive too easily or other 
you know, similarly, similar, uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. offerings. So, um, how does um, sales and marketing team benefit from OpEx? Is because when I win projects, it's almost one of the deciding factors, maybe not always, but one of the deciding factors is that I'm faster, more responsive than my competition. Okay. You think about it, you know, we're, mm -hmm. I'm in a competitive situation. The, the prospect is never waiting on me. They're mm -hmm. always waiting on somebody else. And if you think about, you know, if I'm in a competitive situation with three or four other people, um, and I'm there and I'm there and I'm there and the other people are not. And they're all, they, uh, eventually the client's going to say, well, I'm waiting on this guy. I'm waiting on that guy. I'm never waiting on you. Well, that's in the sales side when you're supposed to be at your best. Okay. Well, how's it going to be at implementation? Right. You know, if you, if that person's always, you know, late and inconsistent and incomplete, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's about trust. Hmm. Right. Do I trust that I'm, you know, the business I'm placing with this person is the best decision. You know, there's no guarantee. You know, there's, there's only a level of trust. Um, and I think, you know, if, Sales and marketing, if you think about operational excellence in sales and marketing, I think it's going to be about um, accelerating the responsiveness to um, customer needs and the changes in customer needs. Yeah. That's a bit if you ever get to a point where you can actually create some demand. Now, you know, some, create a, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've read Blue Ocean Strategy. Mm -hmm. If you could create a Blue Ocean, um, mm -hmm. you know, where you have that innovation premium that you could charge for a, a period of time until other people copy it. Um, you know, so I, I like to tell uh, sales VPs, um, it, it, you can't, it, it takes a minute for them to, to realize it, but if, if you can find uh, objective data and evidence that tells the company um, how it can achieve the sales objectives more readily, then it makes no sense for the company not to put the maximum amount of money behind those changes, right? Because right? you've got well, data and evidence. So it's like bringing the whole resources of the entire company to the service of the sales force. That's what it's like to the sales VPs, and they rarely think of it that way. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, it, it really just comes down to that, you know, the clarity of purpose. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like you're, you're, gonna, you're, asking, you're asking dad for, for, for some funding. Okay, and dad's got to know that this is going to be money well spent. You know, and um, and that's and, what uh, operational yeah. excellence should ensure. Yeah, it, it should. Uh, and you know, getting back to if you if you defined the program with a clear outcome in mind, and everybody understands and agrees that that's a desired outcome, you're halfway to winning. Now all you have to do is just do it. Most people are, are behaving as logistics in search of a strategy. You have to have a strategy. <laughs> yeah, super. Well, Joseph, this has been awesome. Um, thank you so for your uh, interest in doing this and, and support of my uh, podcast. If someone wants to know more about you and your book and your organization, how can they find you? The best way, of course, is on LinkedIn. Okay, Joseph Paris. I'm you know, the guy with the cowboy hat on uh, my profile. I can't get rid of it now because everybody remarks about it. It's uh, almost like a brand. Um, <laughs> so LinkedIn is, uh, you could find me easily on LinkedIn. Probably the best um, website would be Joseph Paris. And by the way, my last name is Paris, like the city in France. Mm -hmm. So it's josephparis.me slash card. 
josephparis.me slash C-A-R-D. Correct. Cool. Great. Well, uh, again, thanks for your uh, time and your expertise here. Uh, it was fun. I think we should do it again. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. I had a, a, a very fun time. It was a very a lively conversation. I enjoyed it a great deal. And thank you for, uh, for thinking about me and having me on your show. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.